Bibles, can you grab them and turn with me to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. And uh, I'm just going to pray one more time for us that God would bless our time in the Word. God, thank you for your Word. Thank you especially for Romans chapter 8. We cannot wait to study it together. And I pray that you would speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... Um, by the way, if, if we haven't met, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, excited to share God's word with you. And I want to let you know something about Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8 has been called by many the greatest chapter in the Bible. James Montgomery Boyce, that's what he said. It's, it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, Romans is the high peak in the Bible, and Romans 8 is the high peak in Romans. And so Paul has been leading in this greatest letter ever written up to this point, and this is as good as it gets, talking about how awesome it is to be a follower of Jesus. That's all Romans 8 is. And so the title of my message tonight is Too Good to Be True. Too Good to Be True. And it really is, if you study and meditate on Romans 8, you start to realize, man, like what God has given me, what God has done in my life, it really is too good to be true. And um, I I was thinking about this. I'll open and share this. Uh, When I was 21 years old, I graduated from college, and my first job was at a a nonprofit um, that was related to uh, the college that I went to. And so I I got the job kind of right out of of college, and uh, it was the first time I'd really had a, a real job. You know, I'd had like working at fast food, uh, working kind of part-time during the summer. I was a valet for a little bit and parked cars. But this was the first time where I was going to have a nine-to-five. I bought a suit. I mean, it was a big deal, guys, I'm telling you. And um, they sat me down, and, and they told me um, the, the salary that I was going to achieve and, and, and receive from this job. And by the way, um, it was like one of those salaries where it was like, I'm just going to have to believe in faith that the Lord's going to provide for me. It was like that kind of salary. But they also told me um, the benefit package that I would be receiving. Now, I've never worked before, keep in mind. So in my mind, I thought I was getting just the most incredible benefits. And what they said was, we're going to give you for working 40 hours a week for us and the salary that you're going to have just, you know, in faith, believing that God's going to provide. We're going to give you one week of vacation. We're going to ask you to stay on your parents' insurance because we don't have that. And... We're going to pay you once a month. <laughs> so, and by the way, it's the end of the month. So your first month, you're just working in faith that this is going to happen at some point. There is going to be a paycheck coming. Just work for us for 28 days first. And so, yeah, I, I really though, but I thought at the time I was like, I can't believe I have it this good. And like, I'm not joking. That's not sorry. I was like, call it. I was like, mom, I've made it. I really have. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's, it wasn't a great benefits package, I found out later. But the reason I tell you that story is that uh, a benefits package, it's all about, okay, if you're a part of this company, if you're a part of this organization, this is all of the things that we're going to do for you, and we're going to value you as an employee. Now, Romans 8, you really could think of it as the Christian benefits package. A lot of times when we think about Christianity, we think God has forgiven us of our sins, We think God has saved us from his wrath, that that I get to go to heaven one day. But Paul wants us to know through Romans 8, there is way, way more than just those things. 
And actually tonight, as we study, I'm going to share nine beautiful realities with you that Paul unpacks. So I'm going to share a lot, almost as many as we had announcements. But, but I promise I'm going to move quickly. We're, we're, we're going to get done on time. So here we go. We're going to start Romans chapter 8, and it's starting in verse 18, and Paul says this. He says, I consider that, the, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so here we get our first benefit that we see, and it's this, that our suffering has a point and it has an end point. First benefit, our suffering has a point and an end point. Paul says our suffering is not worth comparing. Now he does list later in the chapter, we'll read, that there is great suffering that we go through in life. And this is not a surprise to us, but I wrote down a couple of ways that as Christians, we can suffer. And you guys know, even if we do everything the right way, if if we live life according to God's plan, we are still going to suffer. That is just a promise of life. And so three ways, uh, we can suffer by resisting sin. If you've ever tried to fight an addiction, you know that there is great suffering. We have uh, some amazing uh, recovery ministries here and, and there are men and women in there who are saying, yeah, I wanna fight for freedom. And, and there is suffering that comes when you're trying to overcome sin. Uh, you, we can suffer as Christians just for uh, sharing our faith, for being Christians. The world can hate us. The world can persecute us. The world can ridicule us. We can suffer just because we live in a broken world just for the fact that there are other people who sin against us, that there is sickness and there is pain and there is the curse that we live in. And so we suffer. But but what Paul is saying is that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. When you compare the two, it pales in comparison. And he writes something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's up on the screen and it says this, that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, when he's saying light and momentary affliction, he's not like he doesn't realize that life is painful. Paul himself was very familiar with pain, but he's saying in comparison with what is ahead, we could actually call this as painful and as awful and as terrible as life can be we could actually call it light and momentary affliction. I, I was trying to think about uh, a comparison, and I thought about uh, the example of, of uh, my wife uh, when she was in pregnancy and then when she was giving birth. And I, I really almost didn't share the illustration because I do know there are, are, are women who have, have lost children in here. I know there are couples who are praying for children. So I know even bringing that up can be painful, and I do want to acknowledge that. But we have, we've been blessed with, with two children. And so the, the illustration is like this, that as we know, pregnancy, very difficult. Childbirth, very difficult. Great suffering. But it has a point. The point is that if all things go well, you have a, a beautiful baby. It has an end point. You're not going to be pregnant forever. You're not going to be in labor forever. You're not going to suffer forever. And that, that something is going to happen that, that is going to be so beautiful and worth it at the end. And, and my wife, for never one moment, has been like, you know what? Like, I kind of would trade one of my kids back if I didn't have to go through that. 
no, she wouldn't say that because of the beauty that we get to hold in our hands and walk with in our kids. And that's what Paul's saying, that we are going through great pain and struggle as followers of Jesus in this world. But, but that when Christ returns, that it is going to seem like light and momentary affliction. Our suffering has a point and it has an end point. Let's keep reading. Verse 19, it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, this is one of the most interesting passages uh, in Romans chapter 8. And a, a lot of it uh, makes a lot of sense as we read it. This is maybe one of the more confusing passages in Romans chapter 8. But, but here's really what it means. Um, we, we know, and I think we, we generally understand, that we as human beings suffer because of sin. Um, if you've been around church for a while, you know that because Adam and Eve sinned, um, there is a curse on humanity. That we are all sinful, we're all born far from God, that we all uh, are dying and we have sickness in our bodies. There's all these things that happen because of sin. But what Paul is saying is that, yes, humans suffer because of sin, but actually also there is a curse on creation. When Paul says that all creation is groaning, he, he's talking about um, animals, he's talking about nature, he's talking about our planet, and that the actual natural world is under a curse. In fact, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, cursed is the ground because of you. And so a very real reason why we have natural disasters, why we have hurricanes, why, why we have famine is because creation itself is under a curse because of sin. And just like you and I, we're longing for Jesus to come back so that we can be changed, so that we can be transformed, so that we can be resurrected and be with him forever. Paul is saying creation itself is yearning for that. And, and so the second benefit that we see in our Christian benefits package is this, that creation will be made new. The first is this, that suffering has a point and an end point. The second is that creation will be made new. So, so Paul's actually writing, and he's almost giving our earth a characteristic. And our, the characteristic is it is longing and it is yearning because it wants to be set free. And so we know in Revelation 21 and 22, Jesus, at the very end, he's going to come back. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth renewal is going to happen and creation is going to be made new. And so here's what's beautiful. Um, the, the first point about suffering, Paul is saying that, that, that this suffering is so bad, but it's going to be worth it when Jesus comes back one day. But, but here's what he's also saying. He's saying cre creation, and, and can we admit, creation is actually beautiful. Like there's pain in the world, but there's also beauty. We've all been to scenery, the beach, the mountains. We've seen things that have taken our breath away. What he's saying is even that is going to be made even so much more infinitely beautiful that we can't even imagine. The most beautiful scenery here on earth in the here and now, 
what will be the ugliest thing when things are renewed in the new heavens and the new earth. Because creation now, as beautiful as it is, it's under a curse. And God will make it new. That's the second thing. All right, we're going to keep going. Look at verse 22. He says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. But not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they have already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And so here we see the third benefit in our, in our Christian benefits package. Paul writes and he says that we have this great hope. And the hope is not something that we can see. It's not something that we can hold on to. And so we have to actually put our faith in God about it. But he says there is something that we have that is evidence that this will happen. And he says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. I want you to think about this for a second, the, the idea of the first fruits of the Spirit. So Paul is saying there, there's this beautiful benefit. And the benefit, you can write it down, it's this, that not only creation will be made new, but also that our bodies will be made new. Our bodies will be made new. And, and, and we hear a hallelujah. And, and listen, I, here's the thing. Every single person in here has at the very least, a complicated relationship with their body. And, and I don't mean that necessarily like I'm poking fun, but, but all of us in here have experienced pain. All of us in here, m- many of us are walking through chronic illness. Some of us have mental illness that we're wrestling with. Maybe some of us in here, we don't like the way our body looks. We, we feel uncomfortable in our skin. But, but what Paul is saying is that for Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, that there is a moment that you get to look forward to. And the moment is that one day we will be redeemed, that we will have a new body, a redeemed body. It's a beautiful thing. And here's what he says, that the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of that. So here's what I like to think about first fruits. Um, A first fruit is kind of like the theatrical trailer. You guys have been to movies, and before the movie, there are what? There are trailers. Um, Now a big thing is you don't have to wait to the movies. You can just go see a trailer online. Now I have a a strong belief that, and one of my biggest pet peeves on the internet is I want to go see a trailer, but before the trailer, there's an ad. And in my opinion, the trailer is an ad. So I don't think you should have an ad before an ad. I think that should be illegal. It's like, like this ad is brought to you by this other ad. So in my opinion, like all trailers, no ads. That's not allowed. That's, if I were running the internet, that would be the first thing that I did. But the trailer says, hey, I'm going to show you a few different clips from the movie. And those clips are hopefully going to get you excited about actually going to see the movie. And Paul is saying the first fruits of this promise that God is going to redeem us, that God is going to redeem our bodies, that that we're going to have new and and perfect bodies when Jesus comes back, the first fruits of that is the Spirit. So God has given you and he's given me as Christians the Holy Spirit. And that is proof 
that one day God will make us new and he, we will be able to see him face to face. Now people ask and they wonder like, what, what does it look like to have a heavenly body, a renewed body? And to be honest, a lot of it we don't know. We haven't been given the exact details and specifications, but we, we are given a clue in, uh, I believe it's second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, and Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and the stars each have another kind. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to life forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness. They will be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies. They will be raised as spiritual bodies. So so what Paul is saying is, how much better are our heavenly bodies going to be than our earthly bodies? As much more powerful as the sun is more powerful and more glorious than the moon. That's how much more powerful. And so this is our great hope as Christians. That not only will creation be made new, but also that our bodies will be made new. Okay, let's keep going. The the Christian benefits package just keeps getting better. Look at verse 26. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us with our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people according to the will of God. So the, the first three elements that we talked about, they're future things. You, you think about it like our Christian re- retirement package, that we haven't achieved them yet, we're looking forward to them. But, but this benefit is actually a benefit that helps us right now in this present moment. And, and here's the benefit, it's up on the screen, and it's this, that the Holy Spirit prays for us And the Holy Spirit helps us pray. The Holy Spirit prays for us and the Holy Spirit helps us pray. Now, I thought about it like this. Um, When it comes to public speaking, um, and and I do a lot of public speaking, so I think a lot about public speaking. But when it comes to public speaking, there's really two elements if you break it down. There is uh, your communication style, and then there's the content that you have. And so uh, you can be a great communicator. You could be funny. You could uh, not stutter over your words. You could be very eloquent. You could be very uh, articulate or very energetic. But then there's also the content. Do you have something to say? Uh, Do you actually provoke people to think or provoke people to learn something? And so a great communicator, they have both. They have both uh, great content and they have great uh, style or communication ability. You know that there's people who, who maybe have one or the other. You, you might have heard somebody and thought, that person was really funny. I was very entertained. I'm not really sure what I learned. Ho- hopefully you don't think that of me. Um, there's also people that you, you think they're really smart. You're learning a lot, but, but they're not a- as interesting to listen to. Maybe you think of a college professor. He is just pouring knowledge into you, but you're like, man, I'm, I'm struggling to stay awake. Now, the worst case scenario is someone who doesn't have anything to say and doesn't say it very well. And what, what Paul is actually saying is when it comes to prayer, all of us are like that. 
that, that we struggle with how to pray. We, we struggle to be eloquent in our prayers and we struggle to pray the right things. He says, we don't know how to pray as we ought. Like even the best of us, we're not very good at prayer. But what he says is the spirit helps us in our weakness and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with, with groanings too deep for words. Now, now later, we're going to learn that Jesus is actually in heaven praying for us. We're going to study that in a little bit. But, but what we're learning here is that Jesus is in heaven praying for us, and the Holy Spirit is living in you praying for you. And that the Holy Spirit knows the will of God and always prays the will of God for you. So it's a beautiful thing. And I love this quote from Douglas Moo. He's a commentator who wrote on Romans. And he says, when we do not know what to pray for, yes, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, we need not despair. For we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. Now, now let me encourage you for a minute. Because there are some of us in here and we're, we're scared of praying because we're worried that we're going to pray for the wrong thing. And then God is going to like curse us because we accidentally prayed for the wrong thing. Like God's like, huh? shouldn't ask for that. And what Paul's saying is we are praying for the wrong things. That's just a given. But that when we have the Holy Spirit, we can actually be confident that the Holy Spirit is interpreting our prayers, translating our prayers to God the Father and praying the right thing for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we should stop praying. Like, well, it's cool. The Holy Spirit is praying for me. I don't need to do that anymore. Because we're commanded to pray. Prayer changes us. It shapes us. It draws near to God. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to pray better prayers. There are certainly some prayers that are better than other prayers. And we can learn how to pray more and more in line with God's will. So, so again, not saying never pray. I'm not saying just stop trying. Just start praying for, you know, riches and cars and swimming pools. Like we should learn how to pray according to God's will. But I want you to be confident in your prayers because you have an advocate. You have a counselor. You have a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is praying for you according to the will of God. God has given you that gift as part of your Christian benefits package. All right, let's keep going. Look at verse 28. It says this, And we know that in all things, what did I just say? In all things. So we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this is one of the most popular verses in the Bible, and it is one of the most incredible, mind-blowing, beautiful verses in the Bible. I mean, you can just read it, and like, if you really think about it, you're like, that's a crazy promise. That, that for a Christian, literally every single thing that you are going through, every decision you have made, good and bad, every circumstance that's happening to you, good and bad, the promise is God is working in that for your good and for his glory. That's amazing. Now, now we got to remember this because this verse can very much be, be taken out of context. And in fact, 
we must understand that this entire passage is written to Christians. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, you can't be confident in any of this stuff. You can't be confident that your suffering has a point. You can't be confident that one day you will see creation be renewed. One day you'll see your body be renewed. You, you can't be confident that God is actively working all things together for your good. And I think a lot of times people kind of hijack this verse out of context and twist it around a little bit and just think, well, like, everything's working out in the universe for me. That's not the promise. The promise isn't like there's a cool force in the universe and there's some energy that it's going to send great vibes your way and then one day everything will work out good. That's not the promise. The promise is for those who love God, for those who have been called to God's purposes— That's Christians. That's followers of Jesus. For you, God is working it all out for your good. And so you can write this down. This is the fifth purpose or point of our Christian benefits package that God is working all things together for the good of his children. And so if you're walking through hard times right now, if you're walking through the most difficult season of your life, but you're a follower of Jesus, you can be confident that right now God is working it out for your good. And this is actually, I believe this, that this is one of those areas where um, it is a benefit to have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Um, There are some areas, and I I don't believe, if you're a baby Christian, that you're like less less good or less quality or less, um, less qualified than anyone else. And in fact, there's some advantages to just being a new believer in Jesus. You have this passion and this excitement and this faith that, that we who have been around for a little while can learn from. Um, but one of the benefits of having been a Christian for a long time is that you've walked through some challenging things and you've seen God move in your life. And, and so when you walk through the next challenging thing and you know God is leading you, you can kind of pull back on that other stuff and be like, I've seen God work together for the good before. I know he's going to do it again. And there's this really cool story in 1 Samuel of a, of a shepherd boy named David. And, and it's actually a very famous story. It's a story of David and Goliath. And, and David, he, he is about to fight this giant named Goliath who's coming against the people of Israel. And, and nobody in the whole nation wants to fight him. Everybody's afraid. But David, a shepherd boy, volunteers. And in his reasoning for it, he goes to the king and he's like, send me to fight this giant. And here's what he says. He says, I'm a shepherd. And as I've been a shepherd, I have fought lions. I have fought tigers. I have fought bears. Oh my. That, that's like a loose translation from the Hebrew. He says, I've fought these things and I have won because God has delivered me. And he says, the same God that can deliver me from this will deliver this giant into my hands. And so what he's saying is, I've seen God work it together for the good before, and I know that he will do it again. So for you, if you're walking through a challenging situation, if you're you're walking through a situation that you feel like everything's falling apart, man, if you're a Christian, God is working it together for your good. Some of it we will see here. But when we get to heaven, we are actually going to see and understand all the ways that God has 
woven this tapestry together for our good and for his glory. A beautiful part of our Christian benefits package. Okay, let's keep going. Look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. It says, For those that God foreknew, he also predestined. Everybody say, whoa. If you know anything about Christianity, you know that the word predestined has some baggage. Everybody say baggage. Okay. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So, if you've been around for a while, you know that that word predestined um, is kind of a heavy word that a lot of people uh, fight and debate about. It's, in fact, one of the biggest ways that Christians debate with themselves. Because there are some people that believe uh, that God has predestined us, that God has chosen everyone that's saved. And then there's other people, um, and they would believe that we have free will, and we can choose God or we can reject God. And by the way, this has been like a battleground for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And um, what I want to share with you is what I believe is something that has brought me a lot of peace and encouragement. And it may, this is, this is like one of those, uh, those topics where it's like, I'm probably going to get three emails about this. But because like, there's just a lot of controversy about it. But here is what I'm going to say. That at our church... We believe in both. That we believe that God does choose those that he saves. And we also believe that we have free will. And we actually believe that scripture teaches both. Now, that sounds kind of like a cop-out. Like, oh man, like, just pick both, you know? See all of the above. But, but here's what I would say. That... Um, that's big enough. Like, like, I can't wrap my mind around the idea of, man, does God choose both and I get to choose? I can't wrap my mind around that. That God, from the beginning of the world, looked forward and he chose the people that were going to get saved, and yet everyone has free will as well. But God is so big and so mighty and so vast that I, I do believe that can be true. And I truly believe that the Bible does speak of both realities. I, I love what Pastor Chuck Smith says on this. He says, I'm glad that God gave me the opportunity to choose the one that I was going to spend eternity with. I appreciate that choice, but I would not deny God that same right. I think that's a powerful thing. And, and scripture does talk about the fact that God chooses those he saved. We even saw that, that those he foreknew, he also predestined, he chose. Scripture also talks about that God will not turn away anyone who will seek him. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Scripture says that it's not God's will that any should perish, that he desires that all should come to know him. Scripture talks about the fact that we do have a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. And I want you to know that, that I'm okay, the fact that I don't understand that. I'm okay that I can't wrap my head around all that, 
I'm just going to trust the Bible that God is even bigger than me, that he's, he's wiser than me, that there are things in his mind that are so much more vast and complex than anything I can understand. But, but here's what I really want us to, 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 to understand and wrap our minds around with this concept. I think it's so sad that when it comes to God's choice, it has been sort of hijacked into a theological debate when it's supposed to be something that encourages and comforts Christians. You see, the idea that God chose us, it's supposed to be one of the most comforting things to you as a follower of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. We've all been in a place that we didn't feel like we belonged. Maybe you were growing up and and you tried out for a sports team and you had a great tryout. But you knew, like, man, I, I made a lot of shots in that, in that basketball tryout, but, like, I'm not very good. Like, I don't belong on this team. Maybe you, you were in a job interview, and you kind of exaggerated your experience and your job abilities. And you're kind of, like, sitting at your desk, and you're like, I hope they don't realize that I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and a lot of people, they can feel like that with God. They could be like, you know what? Like, I'm here right now. I'm at church right now. But like if anyone really knew like, like what was going on, I don't know if I would be qualified to be here. I hope that the Bible isn't really true when God says like he knows everything. If he knew everything, he would not accept me as his child. And so what the, what the doctrine of, of God's choice says is that before the foundations of the earth, God looked forward and he saw you and he said, I want you. I desire you. You didn't trick God into it. You weren't like at church one day and God had a temporary lapse of judgment and he was like, I made a terrible mistake. (laughs) He wants you in his kingdom. And the fact that you have faith in your heart, the fact that you have a desire in your heart to seek after God, to know God, to be in his family, that is, is evidence in your life that God has chosen you and that he desires to walk with you. And so uh, point six in our Christian benefits package is this, that God is more committed to us than we are to him. God is more committed to us than we are to him. God is committed to you. And what the scripture says, it says those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What that means is, that he is not just committed to saving you, he is committed to the entire process. Justified means that he has forgiven you. Sanctified, that means he is, is working on helping you to become more like him and glorified. That means that he is actually going to take us to glory and bring us home. All of that, Paul writes in the past tense. He says it's, it's almost as if it's already done. God is that committed to you that he's willing to even say, look, consider it done. Consider that you're glorified. You're with Jesus. It's happening because God is committed to you. I love what it says in Philippians chapter one, verse six. It says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So yeah, we do have a part to play. We do put forth effort. But how many know that Even though I put forth effort, God is even more committed to me than that. And God is walking with you and committed to bringing you home. Okay, I told you that we had nine points. 
We got three more. We're, we're, we're wrapping up. We're landing the plane. And this next part is, oh man, so amazing. Over this next few verses, Paul is going to write, ask three rhetorical questions. And he's going to answer those questions. Some of those most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. It says this, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? He's like just listed off all these amazing things. And he's like, what are we supposed to say? What, what do you say in response to the most beautiful realities in the universe? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So point number seven in our Christian benefits package is this, is that God is for us. God is for us. You know, growing up, I, I was in um, a Christian school throughout high school. And, and so I had chapels every single week. And, and kind of my memory of chapel, I'm sure that there was more than this, but my memory of it is that kind of every week we would have a, a speaker come and kind of give us his best message on how messed up we were and how we just needed to commit ourselves to God. And like every week it was like, how many people here are going to take a stand for God? You're going to stop sinning. You're going to follow after the Lord. You're going to give your whole life to him. So every week, you know, we're all up front and we're like, I'll do it, God. I'm taking a stand for you. I promise I'm going to stop sinning. And then like, you know, two hours later, we're like, I forgot about the stand I was taking for God. I'm going to be honest. I'm just trying to get through high school. And, and so that was kind of my memory of it is like every week it's like the big question is like, are you for God? Do you believe in God? And that's a good question to ask. But I think we also need to understand that, yes, we should evaluate, are we for God? But we also should understand God is for us. That, that for the Christian, we can know, yes, we should believe in God, but God believes in us. God is walking with us. And one of the things that I love is that if you read the book of Romans, for 11 chapters... Paul is writing about all that God has done for us. And in chapter 12, we'll get to it in a little bit, we see, yes, there are now some things that we do for God. The same thing if you read Ephesians. We're going to study Ephesians next year. The same thing if you read Colossians. The first section is this. Let me tell you all that God has done for you. Then let me tell you what you do in response to that. So for you and me, it starts with an understanding that God is for us. Yes, we should obey. Yes, we should follow. Yes, we should devote ourselves to him, but not to earn his love in response to his love because he's for us. How do you know he's for us, Brian? Because Paul says he didn't even spare his own son. So if he's willing to let his own son die in our place, so that he could invite us in, he's also going to graciously give us everything else that we need. God is for you. Let's keep going. Look with me at verse 33. He says, who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is to condemn? Who's gonna bring a charge against us? Who's gonna condemn us? Answer, no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised to life, 
who is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And so we've studied that God is for us. And now the eighth of our benefits in our Christian benefits package, it's this, that no one has the authority to condemn us because of God's word, Jesus's work, and Jesus's intercession. I know that's a long point. It's on the website and on the app if you want to copy it later, and we'll leave it up for just a moment. But I was thinking about this because Paul writes and he asks this question. He says, who's going to bring a charge against us? And I think sometimes the picture in our minds is that God the Father is kind of this angry God and that Jesus is like, Dad, no, not them. They're really cool because I died for them. And God's like, okay, well, I don't like them, but like since you died for them, fine. That, that's not what's happening. It's not what's happening. But because God is, is not the one bringing a charge against us in this verse. He says God's the one who's justifying us. I'll talk about that in a minute. So who brings a charge against us? Well, I think three potential uh, groups could bring a charge against us. Number one, uh, Satan could bring a charge against us. We know that Satan um, has access to speak to God and that he is called the accuser of the brethren. So he accuses us. He, he actually, when we sin, Satan is, is heaping condemnation on us, but he's speaking accusation to God. Look at your children. Look what they did. So, so Satan can accuse us. Also, um, I think we know that, that other people could bring a charge against us or could condemn us. Maybe you've had someone in your life say, how could somebody like you be a Christian? No one that has done the things that you've done could ever be saved. Maybe even you grew up in a, in a very legalistic environment and you did something wrong and someone told you, man, you're going to go to hell for that. That's somebody bringing a charge against you. Uh, the, the third kind of group or category of someone that can bring a charge against us is I think our own sin and failures can bring a charge against us. That we do something wrong and so we actually almost bring a charge against ourselves. We condemn ourselves because of our actions. And what Paul is saying is that for those who are Christians, if you believe in Jesus as your savior, he's saying no one actually has the authority to bring a charge against you. Why is that? Three reasons. He says, God's word. It's God who justifies. Someone who justifies someone is someone who says, I've cleared them of all charges. So God has justified you, Christian. God has cleared you of all charges. Why is that? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died and was raised. So Jesus' work, when he died and when he rose again, he paid for your sin. So your sin is paid for. And then Christ Jesus is interceding for us, that he's at the right hand of the Father. He is our advocate. So when a charge is brought to God about us, Jesus is there to say, actually, that charge doesn't stand because I've already paid for their sins. Yeah, they have done something wrong. You're right but I've already paid for it. Yes, Satan, you are accusing them. That's okay. I died for that sin. I paid for it already. So it has no value here. It has no merit here. So, so listen, nobody, Christian, nobody actually has the authority to bring a charge to God on your behalf. Now, now I gotta say one more thing here as a disclaimer. Because... There's kind of, again, in, in the world, and I'm talking about people who aren't Christians, there's kind of can be this general pride 
of, you know what, like, nobody can judge me. Like, like you don't have the authority to say anything to me. Like, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing, and, and you can't judge me for it. Now, now, again, the warning is, this is not for everybody. This is for people who are followers of Jesus. Because either we're going to pay for our own sins, or Jesus is going to pay for our sins. When Jesus pays for our sins on the cross, we do have complete justification, so no one can bring a charge against us. But be very careful standing on your own and just being like, nobody can judge me. Yeah, God actually can judge you. He has the authority to do that. And the scripture actually says that he will judge. And so that is the warning. But then here's the last one, and we'll wrap up quickly. It says in verse 35, the third of kind of the final, these hypothetical rhetorical questions that Paul asks. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's interesting because he writes about a lot of really, really challenging things. So what he's not saying here, part of the Christian benefits package is not a life free of suffering, a life free of hardship. In fact, if you're reading this, he seems to say, you, you probably should expect some hardship. There is suffering. There is brokenness in our bodies. There is brokenness in the world. There is trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. He says, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But then he says this. Remember the question is, who shall separate us from God's love? And he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. So what we see here in the ninth thing that you can write down is this, that nothing has the ability, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. And so the the guarantee of your life is not that there will not be any suffering, not that there will not be any hardship, but the guarantee is this, that whatever you're walking through right now, Christian, you are standing in God's love that you are experiencing God's love. And so as we wrap up tonight, I just want to take a moment. And I think that there are perhaps some people in here that you are suffering. And and, and you're just going through, literally you're going through hell. And the reminder tonight is that what God says is that this suffering does have an end. And that it has a point, that, that the suffering is actually creating uh, an eternal glory. And, and, and that's not to negate the fact that you're going through it right now, but it is to promise you that one day you will look back and you will call it light and momentary. So for those who are suffering, may that be a comfort. Maybe there are those who are doubting. You're, you're struggling to, to understand that God actually loves you. And tonight is a reminder that God is for you. 
that the Holy Spirit is praying for you. That God is working all things together for the good. And lastly, maybe there are those in here that you're not a Christian yet. You're interested. You're seeking. And I'm here to tell you tonight that, that, that yes, even if it was just that you had forgiveness for your sins and, and a, a trip to heaven when you die, it would be worth it. But I hope what you've seen tonight is this, that there is so much more. That, that God has sat us down tonight and he's laid out the benefits And he's talked about all the beauty and the power of what it means to be a follower of him. And he invites us to have that relationship with him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this moment. God, we've been comforted. We've been built up. We've been encouraged. We've been reminded of your goodness. God, I thank you for the the beauty of Romans 8. God, I pray that for some of us, Maybe we didn't know about this chapter before. Maybe we haven't visited in a long time. And I pray that for some of us, this would just be near us for a long, long time. I pray that for some, we would memorize it. For some, we would meditate on it. For some, we would just sit with it and come back to it and encourage ourselves, build ourselves up in the spirit through this beautiful passage. I pray that if there are things in it we don't understand, that we would keep thinking about them until they, they sink deep, deep into our heart. And God, I do pray that for those who are here right now that walked in and they are not Christians, they don't know you. I pray that tonight would be the night that through your word, you bring them into a relationship with you. And that through the word of God, that faith will be sparked and ignited in their life. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.